Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson, here on the magnificent Monday edition of The Yard. Hope you're well today. It's a pretty good weekend. I mean, it was a great robbery weekend. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. That's one good thing I'll say about playing the Golden Egg on Thursday is we as fans of college football get a chance to watch other games and just kind of be fans of college football. And what a great day of football we had on Saturday. Pretty good day Friday, great day on Saturday. Like I read on Twitter some people were like, man, college football saved its best for last. I don't know if that's true. But, man, it was outstanding. It was. And that's one thing I'll say, too, about the playoffs is that every game matters. And that was kind of the focus, right? I mean, we all sit around on uh, Twitter during the ballgame saying, well, how does this impact Michigan? How does this impact the playoffs? What does this mean for Cincinnati? And so I think what's happened is that people are more engaged with the college football, whether it be your game, somebody else's game, somebody within your conference games, or something nationally. I watched a ton of games on Saturday. And and I'm not going to lie about it, guys. I spent most of my time in my room, uh, laid up with three pillows behind my head, the remote in my hand, flipping back and forth, ate a bunch of fast food, and uh, just kind of enjoyed being a dude for a while. It was cool. Now, one of the things, too, I'll share with you guys, too. Maybe you're not familiar with this, but, you know, we have to renew that contract with ESPN every now and again. And so this was the last year of the current contract for the Golden Egg to be on Thursday. I suspect it's going to stay on Thursday. Don't know that for sure, but let's just say I've talked to some people that uh, there is interest from ESPN to keep the game on Thursday because people love it. People love us, and they kind of like Ole Miss, but they love us. And so ESPN is expected to offer an extension of the Thanksgiving night battle for the Golden Egg contract. Don't know when that will be finalized, but I believe that both sides are in agreement that we will keep the game on Thanksgiving. So we'll have more Saturdays like we had this past Saturday. I know many of you, it's kind of a polarizing topic I don't want it on Thursday. I want to be with family. You know, come tailgate in Junction. How about that? Or come meet at one of our great local restaurants. That'd be a nice little uh, change of pace. Come do that. But I would suspect right now, if I were a Bulldog or a Rebel, I would say at least two years, maybe four years, that we will keep this on Thanksgiving. I know some people really like it on Thanksgiving. Others don't. But I believe it is here for the foreseeable future. So, again, the contract is expired. 
And now there'll be some new negotiations about that. And I think in the end, that's what you're going to see happen. I don't think there's any question about it. It's just a matter of kind of getting things resolved, making sure it makes good sense financially for everybody. But we had a good crowd. We really did. Was it 55,000, something like that? It was the best crowd of the year. Considering all the people that complain about it, we had a great crowd. And I didn't mention this on Friday's show, so let me do it today. To all of you Mississippi State students that stayed in town and attended the Battle for the Golden Egg and then went home to enjoy your families on the weekends, you guys are awesome. Had a chance to meet with some of those students uh, at some book signings over the weekend. They said, hey, I went to the game. I stayed here. I went home uh, for a couple days. Now I'm back. And so for those of you that did, I know sometimes our students don't get the credit they deserve. And I'm here to tell you, I am a proponent of Mississippi State students. I think they set the tone for the atmosphere at both basketball and football. Of course, we don't really need a tone setter for baseball. You guys turn out and do a great job in all that respect. But I think our students are outstanding. And I love the little uh, swag surf thing we do before the game. People get all excited. It's, it's the student section at Mississippi State. And I know that I'm going to offend some older people here. When I see older people like my age, I don't think the student section of football has ever been better than it is right now. I love the fact that they're in the end zone. They can all be together and have a good time. You know, I've got a couple of girls that are students at Mississippi State, and uh, they love sitting there. They'd rather sit with the students than they would their own family. And I think it's a great experience, and I think it's you guys make a difference on game day for Mississippi State. And so my hat is off to you. I thank each and every one of you. If I could come and shake your hands, hug your necks, I would. Because I appreciate your efforts. I know it would have been very, very easy to say, you know what, hey, I'm just going to go home for Thanksgiving. I haven't seen anybody in a while. But you know what, Mississippi State needed you there. The game didn't work out the way we wanted. But in reality, you guys were there to do your part. And so I appreciate you. I know there are others who do that maybe don't have the the vehicle or the platform to tell you. So on their behalf, let me tell you. Students, thank you. I would be remiss if we did not talk about some history at Mississippi State. Coach Julie Darty Dennis named SEC Coach of the Year for volleyball. Who saw that coming? What an incredible year the ladies have had. And, uh, and, and we had the, what, the school record, what, 2,200 and something fans at the ball game the other day. It's phenomenal. And, and I've had people come up to me, like Dave Murray and I shot a video yesterday, and they're like, hey, I didn't hear you mention volleyball. Well, you're right, we didn't, and I'm sorry. These uh, ladies, this coaching staff deserves our respect, and it's phenomenal when you think about how this whole thing shook out. Well, guys, we're 25 and 5. 25 and 5. 16 and 2 in the SEC which is second in the league, our best finish of all time. We end the year on a 13-game winning streak, 14-1 and one at home. And again, I think our fans, namely our students, have done a good job turning out. Pretty phenomenal when you think about it. And uh, now we're going to be headed to Seattle, Washington to take on Hawaii on Friday, December the 3rd. That's pretty amazing. There was some talk we might even host. We're not going to, but we're in the tournament. And uh, there are a lot of people like, hey, you know, listen, I didn't, I didn't expect all this to happen. And that's okay. That's the great, great thing about college athletics. There's always something to cheer for, always. 
Ladies were ranked 24th in the most recent uh, coaches poll. Might move up a little bit. We'll see. You know, a lot of people tell me the SEC is not really viewed as a strong volleyball conference, and that's one thing that kind of hurts us in that respect. But there's no denying at all the season that these ladies have had. Brought a lot of pride to a lot of Mississippi State folks that, uh, you know, maybe in the past didn't really pay attention to volleyball. But here they are. Very, very proud of the ladies. And uh, met one of the volleyball parents over the weekend, not even from Mississippi. Said they just had been in a great experience. They love the coaching staff, love the campus, love all of you. And I think everybody realizes something special is happening here with volleyball. And one of the things that I was told when uh, Coach Darty was hired, now Darty Dennis, that uh, it was her program. And she has built it, something we never foresaw. It's been incredible. And so she rightly is named the SEC Coach of the Year. We'll see how things progress from there. We're going to talk some coaching stuff a little bit later in the show, but uh, it has been a wild weekend already. The silly season is here. So we'll see how things progress. But at this point, it looks like Mississippi State's going to be okay. You know, we'll watch Zach Arnett as these head coaches get hired. There are going to be some opportunities, I'm sure, that pop up, and then we'll kind of see how things progress. I don't get the sense Zach Arnett maybe has any ambition at this point in his career to be a head coach. We'll see how things go. But, um, you know, last year, obviously, he was a name of interest. I suspect he will be again. But right now, there are not any fires burning. We'll see what happens here in the next few weeks as uh, these coaches get settled and begin to fill out their staffs and And obviously, there are a lot of people in the media that will kind of revisit that topic because they say, hey, maybe he doesn't like it down there. He does like it here. Uh, But uh, at the same time, too, he's a younger guy, so he'll he'll have some opportunities. Guy's done a good job. I I would say we were better last year defensively, even with our deficiencies at safety. You know, we still had some issues this year. But by and large, I think Zach Arnett's done a great job. Uh, Is in year two of a two-year deal, if memory serves me correct. We did uh, roll him over last year right after the Egg Bowl or the battle for the golden egg. And uh, so I guess he is one year into the two-year deal. We'll see how things uh, progress there. But there will be some opportunities. I know that Mississippi State does want to retain him. But we will do our best over at jeanspage.com to keep you guys apprised of the latest developments. And, uh, again, I am confident Zach Arnett's name will be mentioned in connection with some defensive coordinator openings. Because the first thing that people do is they look, okay, well, who was looking to get on a move last year? So whether there will be some substance to these rumors, that remains to be seen. But you can go ahead and expect there to be some rumors, true or untrue, that surface here in the weeks to come. I want to thank our good friends at Bulldog Burger Company. Love them. You should too. Matter of fact, I might have dinner there tonight. You get a hankering sometimes. You know, for a great restaurant-quality hamburger, and that's the thing. You can get burgers at fast food joints wherever you want. But go somewhere they do it right. It's what they specialize in at Bulldog Burger Company. If you just want a great restaurant-quality burger, then what you do is you go to Bulldog Burger Company. And maybe you get the Bulldog. But after you've had that and you understand the fine cuisine available to you, perhaps you uh, expand your horizons a bit. Maybe you get the pimentology at Bacon. I've told you guys before, that's my favorite one. Absolutely love it. Love the mission, too. But I do get the pico de gallo on the side. Not a big onions guy. I enjoyed the mission. You will, too. 
Always something new, something fresh. Have the BLT salad. You can get that fried or grilled. The main thing that I'll tell you about Bulldog Burger Company is the portions. Fantastic. You always get your money's worth. You get a great meal at a great price with great service with great locations. But you're not going to finish it. I'm just going to tell you rather get you're not going to finish it. You're going to leave something behind. Just how it works. You get more than you pay for at Bulldog Burger Company. Three great locations to serve you right here on University Drive and Start Vegas. Gloucester Street there in Tupelo, and of course the brand new one, Lake Harbor Drive there in the Ridge and Flowood area. Go check them out today. You'll be glad you did. Maybe get that chocolate shake to go. You know, when you're asking, you know, you're winding down, you're getting ready to ask for the check, say, hey, let me get a chocolate shake to go. That'd be a nice little palate cleanser for you. You'll be glad you did. Not many places you can get your dessert to go. I mean, how many times you go somewhere and you get food and you leave it behind? This is a different deal. You'll be glad you did this. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. All right, let's take a look at the weekend that was. You guys are well aware of what happened on Thursday and Friday with Ole Miss and Arkansas winning. Georgia, 45-0 winners over Georgia Tech. Crazy, right? Georgia's in the playoff. Win or lose this weekend against Alabama in the SEC championship game. Georgia is in. Now, Georgia Tech ends the year 3-9. and nine. It's, It hadn't been a good stretch for former SEC co- Mississippi State coaches. Of course, Dan Mullen was uh, terminated prior to the end of the year. Greg Knox, however, now 2-0 and as an interim coach. Maybe somebody should hire Greg as the head coach. Maybe somebody on the G5 level will give Coach Knox a shot. Georgia Tech, though, 3-9, and nine, and it has been a rough stretch for Jeff Collins. They do make a change yesterday, firing their offensive coordinator, and their co-defensive coordinator, and their cornerbacks coach. So three coaches terminated yesterday at Georgia Tech, which tells me that Jeff Collins is going to hang around another year. And if you're Georgia Tech, now is not the year to make a coaching change. There are just too many better jobs out there, and you're going to be stuck with somebody perhaps not even as good as Jeff Collins. But uh, Jeff, not done exceptionally well. And I, I'll be honest with you, it does surprise me. I mean, it really does. I thought – the Georgia Tech would be a better team, not just maybe not contending, but you know, with Jeff's recruiting acumen, and they've done a good job recruiting, I just thought they would develop players and have an opportunity to put some things together. They just they just haven't done it. They just they just simply haven't done it. Whether it be whether it be uh, Atlanta or Birmingham recruiting, I mean three wins last year, three wins this year, you know, how much longer do you give Jeff? I think he gets one more year. It's three consecutive, three-win seasons. So you've got to begin to consider, okay, maybe this is not going to work out. And it really does surprise me. Jeff Collins is one of the most intelligent people that I know, and the fact that they haven't played better is, uh, is interesting. They finish up the, the year. Guys, it's is absolutely insanity here. On a six-game losing streak, they lose the last two by a combined 100 to nothing. Notre Dame, of course – 55 nothing, and in Georgia, 45 nothing, And uh, Georgia Tech, not a team that's ready to challenge top 10 opponents, but you don't score a single point. Probably need to shake up the offensive staff. The three wins this year at Duke that didn't win a single game in the ACC, and Coach David Cutcliffe mutually terminates with Duke. They beat North Carolina. That was probably the high point of the season. They beat Kennesaw State. I mean, beginning of the year, though, uh, they lose to Northern Illinois. But Georgia Tech... Not in a really good spot. 
But yeah, so f- you lose 45 nothing to your rival, and we've been there, right? People generally get fired. But uh, again, the climate right now is just not very good if you're Georgia Tech. I mean, you're going to end up having to really reach for a coach. You're probably better giving Jeff one more year. But I, I think it's pretty safe to say Jeff Collins on the hot seat in hot Atlanta next year. We mentioned Greg Knox earlier. Greg wins 24-21 over Florida State. That ended up being kind of a remarkable ball game. It was very, very close for a while, you know, 7-7 at the break. And then Florida takes over there in the third quarter and then goes ahead 17-7. And you think, okay, they're going to coast to a, a victory. Well, it ends up being a little bit dicey there in the fourth quarter. Florida State scores a late touchdown to pull within three, and then the kicker whiffs on the onside attempt and gives Florida the football. They can run it out. But uh, So Florida State not bowling for the second consecutive year. And you may recall that there are some former Mississippi State players that elected to transfer down there that will not be participating in the postseason uh, for the second straight year. They were all part of the team that went to the Music City Bowl and now they're going to watch bowl games at home. So the grass not always greener on the other side. And obviously there's more to the college experience in football, but you are, if you are a football player, you'd like to be on a winning team that is enjoying the postseason. That has not been the case at Florida State. And I think Mike Norvell, much like Jeff Collins, will enter 2022 on the hot seat. And that's the thing, too, at Florida State. They had such a dreadful start kind of started putting some things together late. So that I'm sure that's one of the things they look at and say, okay, well, maybe we're finally going in the right direction. You know, they start out at 0-4, and they win the next three, lose the next two, makes them 3-7, and seven, right? 3-7 and seven with three to play. They beat Miami, go to BC and win, and then lose to Florida. All of those three-point ballgames. So you probably feel a little bit better about the direction of your program Clemson, of course, pretty good team. You lose them by 10 and then lose uh, to NC State by 14. But 5-7. Five 5-7 and seven. Five and seven at Florida State. And you begin to ask yourself, you know, is Florida State, is it all like behind them now? You know, it's like, are the glory days over at Florida State? I think that's probably a fair assessment of where things are right now. You know, you go out and you get, uh, you know, the, the two hot names – you know, you'll get Willie Taggart, and Willie's a guy that was an exceptional recruiter, did a great job at Western Kentucky. And then he's gone basically in a year and a half. But, you know, kind of looking at what's happened, you know, since Jimbo decided to leave uh, in 17, that was a six and six year for them. They won the Independence Bowl to finish on the winning side of things. And uh, the next two years, five and seven, six and seven, including a bowl loss. Three and six, five and seven. So one ball appearance in the past four seasons for them and four straight losing seasons for them. And that was the thing, too. Like, Jimbo had a pretty good stretch there. And everybody's like, oh, Jimbo Fisher is great. And everybody said, well, that's the Florida State brand. And then you had that really bad year in 17, and he leaves to go to A&M. And it just hadn't been the same ever since. But you begin to ask yourself, you know, hey, you know, if you get the right guy there, can you turn this thing around? And when you look at what's happened, you know, Miami is in flux. Florida just made a coaching change. You know, Florida State could run the risk of really falling behind here. Mike Norvell just two seasons in. I think he gets one more for sure. But you begin to ask yourself, what has happened to the state of Florida? What in the world is going on with Florida football? 
at least once one of those teams is always kind of in contention you know for something major for a new year six and of course florida goes three straight years to the new year six and fires dan mullen but florida state has missed a golden opportunity to get some separation and i'm sure that's part of the thinking with scott strickland you know at florida is like hey you know we've had a chance here to kind of put these guys away we hadn't been able to do so and there are some that have suggested there's got to be more to the story with Dan Mullen in Florida. I don't think there is. I really don't. I think the climate that we're in now in college football, that uh, if you are a kind of person that, you know, maybe, maybe is, abra- is a little bit abrasive, people will put up with that when you're winning. I mean, you think Nick Saban's all bubbly and soft and everything else. He's not. He's not that kind of person. But he wins, so you put up with it. Well, you know, Dan Mullen – was kind of abrasive to people here. We put up with it because he was winning, and he held us hostage every year during the silly season. But one bad year at Florida, and he's gone. And they're still going to end up going to a bowl game. But somebody down there has got to step up. And I'm sure Miami's thinking the same thing, too. Hey, Florida State is down. Florida is down. What are we going to do? Do we need to make a move here? And with so many big jobs out there that are available, you know, is there enough – quality coaching candidates to fill these jobs without us making a reach but florida will be in a bowl game now where do they go I, you know we'll see we're going to look at some of that later in the week kind of projecting some of the bowl stuff because uh, a lot has changed with lsu and florida both winning because now you've got 13 or 14 sec teams bowl eligible not enough bowl spots with our regular tie-ins but and this which leads me to another another comment i want to make here so you guys may follow uh, Brett McMurphy on Twitter. I do. I- I've followed him for years and years and years. I think he's one of the most important voices in college football. So Brett sends out a tweet that 83 of 82, I guess all, all 82 bowl spots are filled. There were 83 bowl eligible teams and that somebody wasn't going to make a bowl game. And he says it's a bowl eligible G5 team. Well, of course, that's, that's the right expectation. Within minutes of that tweet being sent, I have a couple people message me and say, Steve, do you think we're the ones that are going to be left out? Why? Why would we be left out? We're, number one, we're in the SEC. Number two, we're seven and five, and there are a ton of six and six teams. Why in the world would we be left out? And that's the, that element in the fan base that I really want us to breed out. There's just no need for that. Well, what is the basis for this level of insecurity? Okay, so there's 83 teams that are bowl eligible, but for some reason we think we're going to be the ones that get I know there's no we're going to get shafted. We always do. No, we don't. We don't always get shafted. There's some things that don't go our way, absolutely. Absolutely. But to think that we would be left out of the bowl picture at 7-5, and five, you're kidding yourself. We went at 5-7 and seven one year because of the APR in 16. We're not getting left out. And, again, I'm going to project some bowl stuff for you a little bit later in the show. But uh, the reality of it is is that, that that segment of the fan base, that line of thinking has to leave. It, uh, it absolutely has to leave. And it's so funny, too, that there are some people that have spent the entire year telling us that we weren't going to make a bowl game. Will Rogers is never going to be a quarterback. The air raid would never work. And you look at our schedule and say, you know what, hey, we're 7-5. and five. And they say, yeah, we could have been 5-7. and seven. We could have been 9-3. and three. How about that? Could have been 10-2. and two. We're not, but we could have been. That's how close it was. 
So it's like the same people that beat us up all all year on social media saying we're not going to be this, we're not going to be that. Well, then then when we've achieved those things, now all of a sudden the narrative has to change. But they're going to continue to be negative. And so I just encourage you, and I, I'm going to try to do a better job of like not responding to that sort of stuff because all it does is give those people an audience. You know, sometimes I tell myself if those are the only voices speaking, then things aren't you know, evenly situated. It's like if they're the only ones talking, then people assume that's correct. And so I try to get out there at times to kind of correct things, you know, because most fans, like, they read, oh, my gosh, what have they heard? What do they know? What's happening? The sky's falling. It's not. You, you see what's happened on the field. You watch the games. You don't think this offense has improved? You don't think the air raid is taking flight? It is. We're two years into this thing. That's one thing, too, I plan to talk about on Wednesday. Is, I mean, look at where Will Rogers sits right now. With just a mediocre bowl game, he is going to turn in the second most prolific passing season in SEC history. And so for those of you that are air raid deniers, it's a tough stretch. Those of you that are Will Rogers critics, it's a tough stretch. Those of you that said that Mike Leach couldn't win at Mississippi State, it's a tough stretch, and it's fixing to get a lot tougher. We're going to be a much better football team next year. You don't think we've improved from year one to year two? You kidding me? Now, we won't exponentially make that same jump next year, but, you know, I look at that schedule. Some people say, well, Steve, it's a real daunting schedule. Yeah, it is because we pick up Georgia. But I would say outside of Alabama and Georgia that at worst, every other game is a toss-up. At best, State will be favored. I think the schedule actually works out okay with the exception of those Alabama and Georgia games. I mean, Alabama and Georgia go win 10 games a year. Everybody else in the conference, it's a shakeup. You got to get to the end of a talent cycle. I mean, look at what Ole Miss did this year. I mean, that veteran team with a veteran quarterback with a lot of potential. They win 10 games. And I listen, I've read all the angst and stuff about that. Guys, the bottom line is Ole Miss had a better year than us. Ole Miss had a better team than us. Could we have won the game? Absolutely. We didn't, though. And they won 10. And I tip my cap to them. You know, I really do. And uh, Lane Kiffin's probably been better than most people anticipated. But they've done a good job. They've had a great year. There's no denying that. There's no point, you know, trying to poke holes in that. There were several games we looked at and thought they would lose. They won. So you, you just tip your cap and move on and say, you know what, hey, you, good luck next year. It's going to be a much different deal with a much younger team. Let's get back to our SEC recap. Alabama and Auburn. Listen, what a gift, man. Bulldog fans, rodeo season is here. I tried the Dixie National Rodeo. Get ready to roll, man. And uh, I remember being a kid, that was like the biggest highlight for us. My grandmother would get us tickets every year. And me and my brother would wear our cowboy outfits. We'd put our boots on, have our chaps, our vest. And we'd go up there. And just in case one of the cowboys got a little bit scared to get on a horse or a bull, we were willing to do it. Yeah, for sure. Guys, boots aren't just for going out to a country western bar and doing a little boot scooting. Maybe you got a little Texas two-step in your game. Tacovas can make you look better than ever. Absolutely. And here's the deal, too. That's the thing. The versatility of Tacovas is you can wear them somewhere nice or you can live life where you don't go gently. That's what Tacovas does for you. Yeah, it's a rugged, handsome boot. It's my favorite boot brand, and it should be yours, too. 
Be sure and check them out. Tacovis believes in Western for all people, and you can feel that when you go into their stores, when you walk in, you'll be greeted like family, offered a boot shine and a drink, and maybe even an adult beverage if you prefer, and you can get custom fitted for a new pair of Tacovis boots. You can get custom leather stamping or branding, whatever you need to make it feel somewhat individual. Look up your closest store at tecovis.com. But if you can't make it to a store, Tecovis delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And you know what, partner? Point your toes west. Today's podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. Fortunately, you can turn to Nerd Wallet's objective finance journalists to set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your own money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bill so I don't dread April every single year. Managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. Putting away more money for retirement since I'm not going to do this podcast forever. Sorry, folks. And also boosting my credit score since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. Saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. The nerds also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines could have on your life. Weekly financial check-ins with smart money help you spend more time doing what matters and less time worrying about what doesn't. Let NerdWallet's trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. What a gift for us to be able to watch this game. Of course, it goes four overtimes. I'm not a fan of the overtime rules. And once you know, we get to third overtime, we got to go for two. And I think it really helps teams like Alabama. And you say, well, you know, if you're on the other end of this thing, you just got to make one play defensively, and then you score, and the game is over. And that's true. So it adds a lot of drama and anxiety. But, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe let's start at the 10 instead of the 25. Maybe let's move it to the 10 and give everybody four plays to score from there. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, interesting. You know, Auburn and Derek Mason did a great job. Of course, they had a little bit of a break, got their legs under them a little bit. Auburn should have won the football game. And I didn't give him much chance. I know I wasn't alone. With, without Bo Nix, I just think T.J. Finley and those guys could score. And they couldn't. But we get to the fourth quarter, and it's 10-0. And you remember Alabama lines up for a field goal, and they botch the snap and get nothing. And at that point, I'm thinking Alabama's in trouble. Alabama is in trouble. Because if they kick the field goal, they're within a play. Well, they blow it, get the ball back to Auburn. And I'm thinking, you know what? Auburn's just going to salt this thing away here. Even if they don't score, they can eat up enough of the clock to put you in a situation where it's like you can't score 10 points in just a couple minutes. And Alabama comes back and does it. And I'll tell you, one of the things that separates the Bryce Youngs and the Alabamas and Nick Sabans of the world from the rest of the league is that third and 10 play. It's third and 10, and his first two attempts on first down and second down were not great throws. Then on third and 10, you take a shot. And you throw it up, and what is it, your fourth or fifth best receiver? Goes up and makes an acrobatic catch. I mean, the ball is like on the inside part of his forearm. He pulls it to his body, goes down, it's a touchdown. Alabama plays to win. And then they expect to make those plays. There are a lot of times people play not to lose and just kind of hope somebody will make a mistake and you can take advantage. Not Alabama. We're going to go get you. 
And I'm sure everybody on the Alabama sideline, even when it was 10-0 in the fourth quarter, they thought, we're going to find a way to win this game. And you know, in the back of Auburn's minds, they were probably thinking, we're going to find a way to lose this game. And they did. It's funny how life works sometimes. There are those that think they're going to make it and those that think they won't. The funny thing is they're both right. And I can't even begin to imagine the daily life of an Auburn football fan. You know, you have played basically for the last decade or more in-state against the greatest dynasty in college football history and the greatest coach to ever do it. And you've got to find a way to go get up and get excited about playing every year and thinking you're going to catch them. And, and sometimes Auburn does. And this is a year when Auburn should have been able to be a little bit better. I mean, I know they have a brand-new coach there. But if we mentioned on the show before, you get George and Alabama at home, and it's tough to evaluate anybody based on how they play against Georgia and Alabama. But these are the years that Auburn usually makes some hay. And so next year the schedule flips, so Auburn has to travel to Alabama and Georgia. Let me go ahead and tell you now, I'm going to project those as losses. <laughs> but Auburn 6-6 uh, six and six now. And what's interesting about Auburn, too, this is a thing that I don't think people have fully appreciated. We talk about late season collapses. You remember when they beat Ole Miss? They were ranked 18th in the country. They jumped to 13 in the country, and everybody's thinking, well, hey, they may be in the mix here for a Sugar Bowl, perhaps a New Year's Six. Well, they end up losing the last three. Losing the last three. Of course, they have the big loss to us, and, of course, South Carolina comes back, uh, beats them in Columbia, and then they lose to Alabama. So you end the year on a four-game losing streak. You had leads against A&M, Mississippi State, Alabama, I guess everybody, really. You had leads on everybody late, and then you couldn't finish. With the exception of the Auburn game. You didn't have a lead, big lead against Alabama, or A&M, excuse me. I guess it was 3-3 at the break. But you end the year on a four-game losing streak after rising to number 13 in the polls. And, and let me share this with you, too. That's coaching. That's coaching. You can say, well, you know, they had the injury, and that's true. They had the injury against us. But let's be fair, as great as that comeback was, you got to find a way if you're Auburn. you got a 25-point lead and you can't finish that. that. That's coaching. It is. We talk about player execution. That's a part of it. But at the end of the day, when you've got that kind of lead and you lose the lead and the game, ultimately that boils down to coaching. So a four-game losing streak for Auburn, they will be – uh, in the bowl picture, obviously, at 6-6. Six and six. Talked to my good friend Jason Caldwell today. We're kind of figuring this thing out, man. Where's everybody going to be? It's going to be tough. There's a bunch of teams right there at 6-6, six and 7-5. Six, and five, and we'll, we'll get to that later in the show. Vanderbilt against Tennessee. This game, uh, the score makes it look a little better than it was. Vanderbilt, of course, the lone team in the SEC. Uh, not to be bowl eligible. 2-10 and 10 and winless in the league. Pretty crazy to think about how this kind of shook out for them. Not that it was a big surprise. And the, the fact of the matter is, is they were kind of fortunate to win a game. They beat Colorado State, beat UConn. Those games were still barn burners. But this was a 24-7 ball game at the break. And then, of course, uh, next thing you know, it's 31-13 to heading into the fourth quarter. And, you know, Vanderbilt scores late, goes for two you know, to kind of make it look a little bit better but it's a 45 21 game and it just you know it never ever really felt like Vanderbilt was in the game and nor should they have been I mean just the reality of it 
So another great finish, Texas A&M at LSU. It's almost like a storybook ending, and I can't remember who called the game. It may have been Tom Hart. can't remember. But I thought they did a great job calling the game, kind of setting it up, and it's like, hey, it's almost like a movie script. And that's exactly how it worked out. And I don't know. I picked A&M to win the game. But in hindsight, how do you pick against Death Valley Magic? A bowl trip is on the line at Orgeron's final hurrah. You probably could make a movie about all this stuff with Ed. Probably be rated R, but uh, yeah, be, you could make a movie about all this with Ed. And they drive down there, and next thing you know, it's a touchdown. And Jeray Jenkins, a guy that uh, Ed Orgeron really, really liked, and they really pushed him early in his career. They've been beaten up with injuries, and LSU's going to be in a ball game. One could argue they probably, probably could have gone in the tank with all things that were going on. But there's a lot of pride in that uniform, a lot of pride in that logo. There are a lot of people that love LSU. They have a rabid fan base. I wish we were more like them. And you can say, well, Steve, you're talking about our fans. And I'm being honest with our fans. I wish we were more like LSU. I really do. Now, they have a lot more fans in a much bigger geographical area to pull from in many respects. But they don't quit on their team. Now, they may get on social media and grab, but they still come to the ball games. They do. And uh, it was a pretty crazy event there at the end watching that, that go down. And, again, what, so what this A&M thing, I'm not saying anything that anybody else hadn't already said, but, you know, A&M was in a New Year's Six last year. They have a great defense this year. And they finish fifth in the SEC West. Fifth. Fifth. And you start looking through all this stuff. You know, of course, they lose a starting quarterback against Colorado. They find a way to win 10-7 on the road in, in Boulder, and that's not a great Colorado team by any stretch of the imagination. Then they lose to Arkansas, lose to us. You think, okay, they're going in the tank. They find a way to beat Alabama, and that's really the outlier in this schedule. They had some real opportunities. You know, they got hot after that, and I really thought they would have went out. And then they – they beat Ole Miss. I mean, that's the thing. You go back and look. They, they beat Alabama. They hammer Mizzou. They hammer South Carolina. They get Auburn 20-3. to They beat – they lose to Ole Miss. Excuse me. That was the game, in many respects, I think they had to win to really have a, a legitimate chance at a New Year's Six. And that was really a matchup that didn't favor Ole Miss because of A&M's ability to run the football. But, again, they find a way. And you got to give Ole Miss credit for winning that game. Then they blast Prairie View as they should and then lose to LSU. And so, you know, you end the year losing two of the last three and you're eight and four. And I think the question kind of emerges, is, is, is A&M just an eight and four team? Is that who they are in the SEC? I think that's probably a fair assessment at this point. And that's the thing, too, I think you look at and you ask yourself, you know, when those guys joined the league, a lot of people um, you know, just felt like, hey, these guys are going to make life a lot tougher on us. But, you know, we have held our own and then some against them. You know, they're really kind of on the level of State and Ole Miss rather than on the level of Alabama, as some people maybe expected. And with their budget and their commitment to football and their stadium, you look at it and say, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. That they'd be, they'd be great. But let me run this down for you guys. I'm going, to, I'm going to go back to when they joined the league. They weren't great the last several years – in the Big 12. You know, in 98, they go 11-3 and under R.C. Slocum. They don't have another double-digit win season until someone comes in in 2012. Now, it kind of helps 
you had a guy named Johnny Manziel, a generational quarterback that uh, was a three-star kid that a lot of people didn't even recruit. And so he wins the Heisman Trophy, becomes the first freshman to do it. They go 11-2 and two that year. They win the Cotton Bowl, finish fifth in the country. And everybody says, okay, we're rolling. Well, then it's 9-4. and four. That's after an 8-4 and four regular season. Then it's a 7-5 and five regular season. They win the Liberty. So it's 9-4, and 8-5, and 8-5, and 8-5, and, and, and that's back-to-back bowl losses. 7-6, and six, they lose the Belk Bowl that year. Jimbo comes in. It's an 8-4 and four regular season. You win the bowl game. Then it's a seven and five regular season. You win the bowl game, and then last year they go nine and one, uh, and then they win the Orange Bowl. Of course, Ole Miss uh, canceled that game due to cowardice. But you know they have not been a great team in this league. And last year, arguably their their best year, and then you're eight and four this year. And so I think we've got a big enough sample size now. We kind of know A and M's place within this league, and it also is a testament to how difficult the SEC is. Very, very difficult to play in the SEC West, which is, which kind of brings me to this. Um, and I guess maybe we'll hold that thought for a second. Let's hold that thought for a second, finish our, our review here. South Carolina gets absolutely blistered by Clemson. You know that Clemson defense is legit, but thought South Carolina would make more of a game of it. They really didn't. It was really a difficult ball game. And Clemson, you know, ranked obviously in the playoff poll now at our expense. And then we lose ball games, so it doesn't matter either way. But they really, really bottled up South Carolina. South Carolina's leading rusher in the game, 22 yards. That's it, 22 yards. Second leading rusher, 13. Passing stats, pretty ridiculous. Uh, Nolan goes 11 for 22 for 96 yards. They bring in Brown. He goes 8 of 19 for 67 yards and two picks. Just absolutely dominant performance by the Clemson defense. And that's not in any way to take anything away from what South Carolina has accomplished this year. I don't think there's any question that uh, Shane Beamer has quieted his critics. Of course, they're 6-6. Uh, six and six, And even I felt they'd probably end up 4-8. and eight. Began to really wonder, you know, when, that, when they played, I guess it was Missouri, if they would win another game after that. And they have. And to give Shane Beamer a lot of credit, I mean, I've seen these post-game videos with him, and this is a guy that's fully engaged with his team and it's clear he's got some good buy-in there uh, with those guys. But, um, you know, they, they lose to A&M. They beat Florida. They lose to Missouri, beat South Carolina, and lose to Clemson. So you needed to split the last four? They do. They absolutely do. And who had uh, Florida losing to South Carolina? Very, very few of us. Ends up being a difference in going to a bowl game and not. And, of course, they uh, they get Auburn, of course, with, you know, backup quarterback. And that, if, if you've noticed, too, there are a lot of teams after they play us are kind of beat up, missing some guys. Uh, Kentucky, 52-21 winners. I picked Louisville in this ball game foolishly. I guess I need to stop hating on Kentucky and stop loving Missouri so much. But uh, Kentucky absolutely annihilates them. Six rushing touchdowns. And Louisville was favored in the game, which that was clearly a rallying cry for the Kentucky team. If you saw the postgame video, they're talking about who's the underdog? Who's the underdog? Guys, it was 24-7 at the break. And then Kentucky removes all doubt in the third quarter, puts up a couple touchdowns. It's 38-7. And then, you know, it was just a matter of what the final score was going to be. So give those guys at Kentucky a lot of credit. Better than I expect them to be. 
And that, you know, Mark Stoops, and this will give us a good chance to transition. You know, there was some discussion, too, about, you know, is this the year that people make a run at Mark Stoops? I thought Florida might. I don't know if that's a big enough splash hire. And I don't know that they made a big splash hire with Billy Napier, even though I think he is very intriguing. Does LSU take a run at Stoops? Do they? You know, we'll see. Looking at the standings now, and, um, you know, we mentioned Mississippi State finishing fourth after being picked seventh. I think that's important considering uh, all the developments here. But, uh, you know, Georgia obviously headed to the playoff. Kentucky at 9-3. and three, I think they end up in the Citrus. They've been there recently, but I still think you take them because you're going to have three SEC teams in a New Year's Six or the playoff. Georgia, Alabama, Ole Miss. And then there's Kentucky, the only 9-3 and three team in the league. So it makes sense for the Citrus to take them, even though they've had them in recent years. And then after that, it's kind of a free-for-all. Who goes to the Outback? Well, you've got one 8-4 team. Does the Outback take Arkansas? Yeah, makes, makes sense to me. Then there's the Gator Bowl. And so we'll get to some of this a little bit later. But when you look at the, st- the standings, and anybody can make a list, as you guys are well aware. And I remember reading some people, you guys are, you trolls on Twitter are really good about saving screenshots. There were a lot of people that projected LSU to be much better this year. Don't know why. But I don't think anybody had them finishing last in the SEC West. And they did. Last in the West. And of course, Vanderbilt 0-8. Florida wins the East in 2020 and ends up 2-6 and six in the league and 6-6. Six and six. Who knew Greg Knox would be their savior at the end of the year? It's a fun thing to look at. It really is. And how cool is it to have 13 of 14 SEC teams bowl eligible? That's something that uh, we've never seen. So we'll have a lot of rooting interest. And some would say, well, Steve, what do you mean? Well, I root for everybody in the SEC in the bowl game except for Ole Miss because that's our direct competition. And, of course, uh, you know, we want to end our year on a high note. We don't want them to. They've won the egg for the second straight year. They're in a New Year's Six Bowl, so there's no denying They've had a better year, but you'd like to be able to say, ah, you know, well, that's all over with, you know. You'd love to say it, and you hope that it is. All right, today's top ten list brought to you by Clothes at Blair.com. Uh, Blair Chandler, a great friend of mine, a great friend of yours. You need a friend in the industry. It doesn't matter what you're getting involved in. It doesn't matter what's going on in life. But when you take on something that is kind of daunting, something kind of stressful, it's good to have a friend to kind of hold your hand through the process. And that's who Blair Chandler is. Blair also is a bulldog. Likes to do business with bulldogs. He won't turn away any business. But uh, because you're a bulldog, he's going to give you a little bit of a discount here. If you just mentioned to him that you heard this on the Boneyard, and I guess if you're an Ole Miss fan, you can do the same thing. You mentioned to Blair Chandler that you heard about him on the Boneyard. Whether you do it in text or by phone call or by email, he's going to pay for your appraisal. There are a lot of fees associated with refinancing a mortgage or getting a mortgage, uh, doing a second mortgage. And so he's going to save you a little bit of that expense by paying for your appraisal. It's about a $500 value. Not a lot of people willing to do that. Blair is. And some of you guys, too, have already taken advantage of your services. And I'm sure you're going to have some testimonials for me when it's all said and done. But Blair is a guy that's committed to Mississippi State, season ticket holder in multiple sports, has a place up here, known this guy a long time. This guy of integrity, 21 years in the mortgage industry and a top 1% close ratio in the country. Works for Fairway Mortgage, not some fly-by-night, some prowl lender. I'm going to give you his personal cell number. 
You're not going to call and let's leave a voicemail with uh, a receptionist that gets left on a sticky note that ends up in the bottom of somebody's trash. You're going to get direct access to Blair because he values your business. That phone number is 601-500-2344. Again, 601-500-2344. All right, today's top 10 list. I was um, enjoying some Alice in Chains earlier today. A lot of you guys will say, hey, Steve, we've done Alice in Chains. We have. We're not going to revisit that, but there is an Alice in Chains song on our list today. And so some of you young bucks have heard about this, but I lived through it. It wasn't like living through Woodstock or anything. I'm not that old. But when MTV, when MTV played music, that used to be like in the 90s, MTV was the greatest. MTV was innovative. It's before they started doing all these shows. You know, before they did Teen Mom and Jersey Shore and all that stuff. Back when MTV, the M stood for music, music, television. They did some incredible things with the Unplugged series. So today we're going to do the best of MTV Unplugged. Now, I'm going to go against some of our rules ordinarily for the top 10 list. There's some covers on here. There's a band that I don't really care for on here, but I can't deny that they did a great job, a rendition of a, of a, a classic song. And a lot of people mistake it thinking it's one of their songs. It's not. But uh, one of the cool things is that some of these MTV Unplugged albums are available on Spotify and Apple Music. And so you can go back and relive that. Now, there are a couple of them that are not. I couldn't find the Cranberries. And, you know, Dolores O'Riordan died a couple of years ago prior to uh, recording her part on, um, on Zombie with Red Wolves. But their Unplugged sessions were incredible. And so if you can find that on YouTube, I encourage you to do so. Lauren Hill, one of the best R&B singers of my generation, she also did. A great job on Unplugged. Basically, we played most of the hits from the misinformation, or excuse me, the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Can't find that one. Didn't find it on iTunes, or I would have included some of it. But one of the best songs of the Unplugged era, they did an MTV Unplugged rap edition. I think they called it MTV Unplugged Uptown. It had Tribe Called Quest on it, a few other people. LL Cool J did an incredible acoustic version of Mama Said Knock You Out. Now, it's available on YouTube. It's not available on Apple Music or Spotify that I found. But if you watch that video, there's, there's some moments in life you watch things and you think, man, I would have loved to have been there. When I saw that, and even now when I watch it, I kind of get chills. There is so much energy in the room when they're playing Mama Said Knock You Out. And uh, it is an acoustic version, and it is absolutely phenomenal. And then about halfway through the song, they kind of go into hard to handle. How cool is that? And then they come back out, and he's got a PSA about crack, about don't you know, leave that crack alone. So if LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out unplugged version would have been available on Apple Music, it would have probably been in the top three. But watch that video. You'll be, you'll be amazed. And so if you know the song, if you know LL Cool J and you appreciate the unplugged stuff, you need to check it out. It is absolutely phenomenal. I can't say it enough. All right, so top 10 list, top 10 best of MTV plug that's available, that caveat. Number 10, I was not a huge fan of this band because it was more adult contemporary and I was uh, listening to you know, a lot of house music and techno and heavy metal and industrial music at the time. But Natalie Merchant, the lead singer from 10,000 Maniacs, is phenomenal, to quote Ben Howland. She's phenomenal. Um, and so 10,000 Maniacs did an unplugged thing, and I, I really didn't dig them or that genre 
But they did a great cover of Because the Night. It's a Patti Smith, Bruce Springsteen song. Uh, it is it is their version of it, their rendition of it. It's just spectacular. Probably my favorite 10,000 Maniac song is Trouble Me. You know, it's about, you know, people just trying to get it all together. And it's like when you need somebody, you, you know, trouble me. I'll take care of you. But Because the Night ended up being a huge hit. Like, it got released as a single, and it was on the radio everywhere. So it's 10,000 Maniacs, Natalie Merchant of the 10,000 Maniacs, Because the Night. Number nine, this is one of the later unplugged albums, and you can find this in its entirety on Apple Music. It's Brian Adams. And people don't fully appreciate what a great vocalist Brian Adams is. And he he sang kind of the soundtrack of my youth, right? I mean, you know, we couldn't get, you know, Motley played on the radio very often. But, you know, rock radio back in those days was like Toto and Foreigner. And Brian Adams was a guy, too, that was an MTV hero. It seemed like everything he did, everything he did was a hit. But his acoustic version of Summer of 69 on this Unplugged album is incredible. Number eight, one of my all-time favorite rock bands. Again, this was kind of a later Unplugged thing, kind of when it it faded a little bit. Um, But it's the Scorpions. We've done Scorpions Top Ten, too. Um, But the, the acoustic version of still loving you and then the crowd sings along which gives me chills i absolutely love those moments in music when everybody in the room is engaged and kind of in the moment and not you know recording everything with their ipad or whatever but still loving you from the scorps and it is a beautiful version number seven you guys know i'm not a nirvana fan but the nirvana unplugged album i know was a huge huge hit and probably the biggest single off that was a David Bowie cover, The Man Who Sold the World by Nirvana. And again, a lot of people mistakenly think that is a Nirvana song. It's not. They just did a really cool version of it. Not a Kurt Cobain fan in the least. Um, you guys know that I think he's extremely overrated, but I thought he did a really good job on this song, and, and, and I can admit it. Number six, you know, Kiss reunited. I know they're still doing their farewell tour that's lasted 20 years, but... Um, they reunited with the original lineup and recorded the Psycho Circus album, and it seemed like Kiss was everywhere. Everybody was so excited that Ace Frehley, matter of fact, I wore my Ace Frehley shirt yesterday. Ace Frehley and uh, Peter Chris were back with the band. They did some deeper tracks on their Kiss Unplugged album, which you can find online. But I like Beth. I did. I really liked their version of Beth. Peter Chris sang. He's a little bit raspy as a vocalist. Uh, you know, Paul's the voice of Kiss, but um, I thought Peter did a great job on this. And ironically, Gene Simmons not a big fan of the song, but it's been arguably their biggest ballad in their catalog. So Beth by Kiss is your number six song. Number five, one of my favorites. I don't know that we've done a top ten. of uh, Maybe we have. I don't know. Maybe we'll get Roy to check. I'm sure he'll text me later and say, yeah, we've done them. Uh, but Queensryche, Queensryche, Jeff Tate, one of the best vocalists of my generation, I don't know that he gets enough appreciation because they're kind of a progressive concept album type band. And I think there are a lot of people that just never really got into Queensryche. But technically, like you go back and listen to the guitar parts on Operation Mindcrime with Michael Wilton and Chris DeGarmo, it is better than just about anything else in the genre. And I, and I had a discussion over the weekend, like some people kind of mislabel some bands from the 80s. They say, oh, well, they're, they're hair metal. Guys, bands like Tesla and Queensryche are not in that genre. 
And as much as I love all that, all that West Hollywood sound, I do. I love it. I think it's amazing. Queensryche was out of Seattle. They were the, the originators of Seattle music. I guess them at heart. But, uh, but my point being is that they were not hair metal. And so to me, I, number one, the term is offensive. But number the, the next part of that, too, is to lump bands like Tesla and Queensryche in with you know Motley and Poison and all the Revlon rockers, it's just disrespectful. But Queensryche did a great unplugged album. And Silent Lucidity is the one I went with here which is one of the greatest songs, I would say, of that decade. It was a huge crossover hit. You could hear it on Top 40 Radio. It was everywhere. It's probably their highest charting uh, single of all time. And the song Silent Lucidity, and some people don't fully understand what this is about. I heard a, a Jeff Tate interview shortly after the Empire album came out, and it's about explaining dreams to a child. Like if a child wakes up you know, from a nightmare, and then you have to explain to them, um, what a dream is. It's like in your mind, you thought this was real, but it's not. You're safe here in your bed. And that's what the song is about, silent lucidity. And so it's not about, you know, I'll be watching over you. It's not a relationship song. It's about a parent to a child explaining what dreams are. And that is an interesting concept. And uh, the song is absolutely beautiful. Number four, and I want to take a little time to talk about this. Because uh, this is what got me on the Unplugged kick today. Listen to the Alice in Chains Unplugged album. I Listen, when Dirt came out, I thought it was one of the greatest albums ever produced. And I, I'll be honest with you, I struggle with people that call Alice in Chains grunge. I do. They're not. Alice in Chains was actually originally a glam band. And then when Lane retooled the band, he hired Jerry Cantrell and they had a heavier edge. But you go back and listen, you know, to Sap and, and uh, Facelift, it's not grunge. It's rock and roll. It's alternative rock, but it's not, it's not what we came to know, you know, with Psilocybin and Pearl Jam, Mud Love Bone, uh, Nirvana, in some respects, Soundgarden. But Alice in Chains, I think, kind of exceeds the label of grunge. I, again, I think it's almost disrespectful to kind of put them in that box. But... Their live album, the Unplugged album, um, was a pretty easy decision because Jar of Flies had been so successful. And I don't know if you know this, and if memory serves me correct, this is correct. Jar of Flies was the first EP to ever debut at number one of any artist, of any genre. And when I first heard Jar of Flies, I didn't like it. Because, you know, what I like about... Alice in Chains is the angsty, dirty, filthy truth. A lot of addiction type stuff in there, and so maybe that's why I gravitated to it. But uh, speak, they speak my language. And so I didn't like it because I thought they were kind of selling out, kind of going with the unplugged theme. So they went with Jar of Flies. And so it made perfect sense for MTV to reach out to them. Now, the band had been on hiatus for about two years. And if you watch this online, and you can, you can watch it in its entirety, Lane Staley is out of his mind high. But he produces a great performance. This proved to be one of his final performances of his lifetime. So this happened, I guess, in March of 96. I think it's right. And then the final performance they did is they, they were out with Kiss. Allison James is opening for Kiss, and... Uh, July 3rd was the final live performance 
for Allison Chains because Lane Staley was deep in the throes of addiction. And uh, I had read something, too. Let me see if I can find this for you, too. Maybe, maybe I can find this for you quickly and share this with you. But there was a Rolling Stone interview shortly after the Unplugged performances. And, uh, you know, Allison Chains is getting ready to go out on the road. And Allison Chains didn't tour a whole lot. That's a thing, too, because of all the issues with Lane. But, um, you know, a lot of people felt, even then, even though, like, even the recovery community, there were a lot of people that felt like, that Alice in Chains, especially the Dirt album, really kind of glorified the use of drugs. And so Lane Staley was really tortured by that. And here he was just trying to share his pain with people. And it got misinterpreted. And so here's a quote directly from Lane Staley. I wrote about drugs, and I didn't think I was being unsafe or careless by writing about them. Here's how my thinking pattern went. When I tried drugs, they were great, and they worked for me for years, and now they're turning against me. And now I'm walking through hell, and this sucks. I didn't want my fans to think that heroin was cool. Then I've had fans come up to me and give me the thumbs up, telling me they're high. That's exactly what I didn't want to happen. And so he was a tortured soul and uh, basically became very reclusive. And then his former fiance, uh, Demry, who he turned on to heroin, overdosed and died October 29th of 1996. And he never recovered. He just simply never recovered. And uh, I believe they said his body was like 80 pounds when they found him. And he was missing teeth and had all kinds of problems. And um, it's really, really sad. And so when I listen to this stuff, this Unplugged album, I kind of understand the context of which it's being recorded, but I also understand what is to come. And I think the lesson learned from all of this is that, and this is one of the things they teach us in, in AA and NA, is it is a progressive illness. It is absolutely progressive illness. You know, like this, like Axel Rose even saying, I used to do a little, and then a little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more. That's what happened with Lane Staley. And he got so incredibly depressed because of the death of his former fiance that he just simply could not move on with life. He gave up on life and eventually died of an overdose. And it's very, very tragic. Uh, and so I always, when I listen to those songs, it always play the tape all the way through. And I know what happened to Lane Staley in the end, and it's very unfortunate. Matter of fact, I ordered a Lane Staley shirt today from the Lane Staley Foundation uh, because I want a, a reminder, but also, too, I want some of that money to go towards uh, helping heroin addicts that seek recovery. So if you're interested in doing that, you can Google that, the Lane Staley Foundation. His mom uh, runs that foundation to try to help promote education for heroin abuse in the Pacific Northwest. Okay, on a lighter topic before we all get up down and depressed. Uh, Mariah Carey was phenomenal. <laughs> and I feel like I've said that a million times during this segment of the show. But Mariah Carey, one of the best vocalists, regardless of gender or genre, of our lifetime. She is incredible. And she did an Unplugged uh, album that on MTV. And like it was, I think it sold 10 million copies. It was ridiculous how much this album sold. She did a cover of the Jackson 5's I'll Be There, which made people want to go learn more about the Jackson 5. She kind of introduced them to a new generation. But she is an iconic singer, and I think her version of I'll Be There is chilling. I mean, it is absolutely perfect. Number two, this is one of those albums, too, that um, it was a very important time in my life, I guess, in many respects, because, uh, you know, I was you know, working through some recovery stuff. But also, too, I was living life on life's terms. 
But I read a Rolling Stone interview with Eric Clapton after uh, his young son, Connor, had passed away. And if you don't know the story, you can look it up. I won't go through all the gory details, but it was one of the most horrendous things that's ever happened. And Eric Clapton was one of the first people on the scenes. And, you know, Eric was in AA and in recovery at the time. And he talked a lot about, you know, when that happened, I began to think, you know, this is, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. How could somebody stay sober through all this? And he said, you know, I, I called my sponsor. I leaned on my friends. I went to meetings and I made it through. And I, I told myself then, if he can stay sober through that, then I never have an excuse. It was kind of one of those epiphanies, you know, those spiritual awakening type moments where you're like, you know what? I can learn from this. This is a tragic event, but I can learn from this. And so Eric wrote a song that many of you have heard that he performed at the, on the Unplugged album. And it's Tears in Heaven. And it's about his son. You know, would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? It's just absolutely a gut-wrenching song. I know a lot of people have... Uh, it played that at funerals and things like that. But uh, it originally appeared on the Rush soundtrack, if you know that movie. It's a drug-related movie as well. And, but the unplugged version is the one. That's the one that people look at. And uh, he won Best uh, uh, Song of the Year, Best Male Vocalist, Record of the Year. It is just one of those things that uh, I think it is a timeless song. And we know Eric Clapton from... You know, his great career as a rocker and a blues player. But this is the one for me. This is the one, you know, when it all come, comes together and people really share their heart, this is the one. But number one for me, because I don't, I don't want, you know, I don't like to end on a ballad. I don't. I was a huge Pearl Jam fan at the time. I'm still a big Pearl Jam fan. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go pay 500 hours to watch a show. Um, but I love Pearl Jam. I was one of the first people to put the wheel on that bandwagon in South Mississippi, thanks to the fine folks at Sound Shop at uh, Cloverleaf Mall. I heard about Pearl Jam, had read about them, was somewhat familiar with Mother Love Bone. So I'd heard a little bit about them. And uh, when Even Flow came out, it was kind of like, holy smokes, who are these guys? This is different. You're not supposed to be listening to, uh, you know, to the 80s rock anymore. You know, we had transition. And so Pearl Jam was kind of that band for me. And I guess it's one of the reasons I don't like Nirvana is because of the Pearl Jam-Nirvana feud. But I thought Pearl Jam's Unplugged show on MTV was, well, not that was a groundbreaking. I just thought it showed a more vulnerable side of Pearl Jam. It's like we'd seen the videos and that sort of stuff, but to see them be able to talk and interact with the crowd and stuff was just simply different. But the best song, I think, on that performance was Jeremy. Jeremy, and that is, you know, that's a song too that I think a lot of people don't fully understand, you know, the uh, the story behind it. And you can research that online, but that was right around, you know, kind of forecasting some of these, some of these school shootings. You know, there had been a school shooting; it was in the newspaper, and Eddie Vedder was so moved by the thought of some kid just being so hurt that he felt that was only his alternative, was to go to school and and kill his classmates and and he spoke a lot about troubled youth after that you know about how it you know it's not always going to be this way you know you're going to get through this and you're going to get through life and things are going to pick up for you and he goes man I just wish I could take all those kids and just hug them up and that's exactly how I feel sometimes too uh, but Jeremy a phenomenal song lyrically I, I think it is one of the most haunting songs uh, probably not just from that era but of all time I mean just you know like the talk about the parents and you know, the fact that mommy wouldn't wear, you know, I mean, it's just, there's so many things in there. It makes you feel for so many kids out there that have a really desperate life. But that's your top 10 list today, MTV Unplugged. 
You never know what I'm going to come up with. Many of you were thinking, well, maybe he'll do Jethro Tull. No, no. It's the best of MTV Unplugged, and I know you guys love the 90s music, and so much of this is from the 90s, but a pretty good wide assortment here. But again, if you can find, you can find those performances on YouTube, and I think some of them are actually on Paramount TV now, where you can watch them. Uh, they've been kind of enhanced, and you can watch them on your TV. I think you'd enjoy that. But if you're a fan of music and you didn't know, you know, all the kind of the storytellers, I used to love that song, that song, the show VH1 Storytellers, too, where people told the stories behind the songs. I enjoy that. I do. I really enjoy knowing kind of what the inspiration is for some of my favorite songs. And when you watch these unplugged things, you kind of get some of that. Uh, one thing's too, or kind of an aside, too, from the Alice in Chains unplugged is Metallica was in the crowd. And they had cut their hair, and they were doing all the, uh, I guess it was when they were getting ready to do Load. And Jerry Cantrell wrote on his guitar, friends don't let friends get friends haircuts. And it was kind of a, a friendly jab, but they're friends of Metallica. So, again, go check it out. If, if I was picking today, I would listen to Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains, but I think you'll enjoy all of these. And uh, enjoy the list, too. It could be a good ride home for you today. And thanks so much to, to Roy and Izzy for what they do to make these lists accessible to you guys. All right, next segment of the show brought to you by Campus Bookmart. You know those friend, those people well. Saw Stan the Man this weekend, spent some time with them on Saturday. It was a great time. It always is. Stan the Man's – here's the thing about Stan, and I don't know if you guys appreciate this. There are a lot of people that were, like, born to be singers, and there were other people that were, like, born to be, uh, you know, politicians or born to be lawyers. Stan was born to be in retail. Friendly guy, always got a smile on his face. You never see him get, you know – elevated emotionally about things you know even like if something's not right well it's you know it's what we can do he's just the perfect guy for customer service does a great job got a great crew there i didn't get to see Susie this weekend so my weekend was somewhat diminished she is uh my friend i love her and kathy and the whole crew there cheyenne everybody candy everybody down there will treat you like family because in their mind you are family so if you're looking to outfit your family and latest in mississippi state merch and you should be Go to campusbookmart.net, and by being a loyal Boneyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays. It's BSR, and that does stand for beautiful Steve Robertson. That's right, BSR. That gets you free shipping on all orders over $50. Any order less than 50 bucks, absolutely incomplete. A lot of hoodies in there, too. That was one of the things I was there yesterday, and uh, excuse me, I was at the Bookmart yesterday, and they're having to kind of swap back and forth because you guys are hitting up all these online orders, and so there's a lot of hoodies being sold. There's a lot of Mississippi State National Championship merchandise being sold. And I saw they had a sign-up yesterday, 40% off pirate merchandise. You know, we had a bunch of pirate merch, you know, when it all started, when we first heard Mike Leach. What well, that, you know, trends kind of come and go. So if you're interested in that, you can find the pirate merch at 40% off. And be sure to check that out uh, today. Campus Bookmark, your friends. Again, promo code BSR. Okay, let's talk a little bit about bowls. I want to talk about us, Okay. We'll, later in the week, we can kind of project some other things. But I want to talk about what's going on with Mississippi State. So, unless Alabama upsets Georgia, Mississippi State is headed to either the Texas or the Liberty Bowl. Now, last week, most of the talk was Texas Bowl. Liberty Bowl has really kind of risen to the forefront. People say, oh, well, see, we've already been there. That's true. That is true. But it is a December 28th game compared to a January 4th game. And I think there are some people that feel that is more advantageous for us. I think we would go to that game. I don't know if we'd all go to Texas. Now, that's not to say that that wouldn't be a great experience. We've never been to the Texas Bowl. And I know they want us. 
I've been told they want us badly. But I don't think that is the odds-on favorite today. I think it probably is the Liberty Bowl. And someone would say, Steve, we just went to Memphis. We did. We did. But I think it's one of those things, too, where where are we most likely to sell tickets? You know, that's those are the things I think you look at. And you guys want to go to the game, right? I want to go to the game. I'm going to be there no matter where it is. But I know many of you want to be there. And, uh, you know, we hold, what, the top two attendance records. I think 2007 is still the attendance record of all time. And we were so desperate to have something to feel good about, we bought every ticket that we could find. So we have not been to the Liberty Bowl since 2013, and that was the sophomore season at Dak Prescott. That was a year, you remember, we went 6-6. Six and six. We had to beat Arkansas and Ole Miss uh, to get bowl eligible. And then we absolutely destroyed Rice, who was the Conference USA champion, uh, 44-7. to seven. That's the last year that the Conference USA champion appeared in Liberty Bowl. Probably smart for them. We have not been since then. So it would make some sense when you begin to think you know, regionally and geographically that we go up there. In the time that we have gone, A&M has gone, Arkansas has gone, Georgia has gone, and then in 17 you didn't have an SEC team. Missouri went in 18, and then there has not been an SEC team since then. So I know that there are a lot of you that would rather go to Memphis than Houston because of the travel. Now, the flip side of it is going to Texas, you know, it's an NFL stadium. It's indoors. Houston is a fun city, one of the best cities in the world. So there's plenty to do up there. And Memphis is a lot of fun, too. And I know the area around the Liberty Bowl, not the best. I get it. But I think this is where this is trending. Could be Texas. I think it's probably Liberty today. Now, we won't know for sure until Saturday night after the end of the SEC championship game. So what happens if Alabama wins? Well, if Alabama wins, and I don't think they will, number one, I think Georgia is simply better than Alabama. But Alabama is incredibly beat up. Having to play a freshman running back, you know, Brian Robinson was banged up again this past weekend. They'll score a little bit. I can't wait to watch the game. But let's just say Alabama wins, then I think, you know, everybody moves up a little bit, right? Because then you'd have two in the playoff. Ole Miss probably at that point in the sugar, right? And so then maybe we go to Nashville again. Maybe. But, again, I don't think Alabama's going to win. If Alabama wins, I think it changes a lot of things because everybody moves up a spot. I think that's, that's probably the best way to, to explain that. But the Texas Bowl and Liberty Bowl are on the same level. A lot of people are like, well, Steve, it's a better ball game. No, so here, let me explain how this thing works. So there are currently, what, 12, 14 SEC teams. So all that money goes into a pot. And then we get a share of that. That's how that works. We, like, when you see that the payout is X number of dollars, we don't get all that money. It all goes into the SEC coffers, and then we get that big check at the end of the year. We all share. So whether you go to a bowl game or not, you get a share of the money. That's the beauty of being in a conference. So the more teams we have in the playoff, the more financially beneficial it is for Mississippi State. And many of you are thinking, oh, I don't want Ole Miss to be in the Sugar Bowl. You know what? Hey, if they've earned it, they've earned it. And I don't know how you argue against it. I mean, goodness, I guess Alabama could get blown out and they could even drop beyond Ole Miss in the FBS rankings, and then then you're certainly going to have Ole Miss in the Sugar Bowl. But I would say as it projects right now, it's probably Alabama in the Sugar and Ole Miss in the Peach, and I think that's what most people probably see. But the money itself 
is shared by all the member institutions in the SEC. See, Vanderbilt's going to get the same amount of money we're going to get in most instances. Now, we do get a bigger share of our bowl payout. We get an extra share because they help pay your expenses. But it's not a situation that you look at, oh, you know, this is a better bowl game. It's not better as far as prestige. A lot of people just, you know, you consider Liberty, you say, oh, well, that's always been one of the lower teams in the SEC. Well, we've got more lower bowls now, so it's kind of pushed up. It's in that group of six bowls, and so it's on the same level as a Texas Bowl. Simple as that. You know, we add the Texas Bowl and we add the Belk Bowl because of geography. That way you can send you kind of a middle-of-the-road SEC East team over there. You can send in that West team over there. So let's look at how this thing kind of lays out right now. Uh, Georgia in the playoff, and I do believe Kentucky is going to be in the Citrus. I th- if, if you had to ask me right now on Tennessee, what does Tennessee do? What does Tennessee do? And, you know, they're 7-5 and five just like us. But they're going to sell a ton of tickets too. And I think it's interesting. Tennessee and the Gator Bowl have not always had a long-standing relationship. It's been a long time, I guess, since those guys have been there. I guess that's not correct. I had a brain fart there. They were there just a couple years ago and played uh, Indiana, I guess. Yeah, played Indiana. They beat Indiana and uh, brought 61,000 people to the Gator Bowl. And that had been the first time, uh, I guess, since 15 they had gone. And so, you know, we'll see how things progress with them. But I I think Tennessee, you you, you could put Tennessee in Charlotte. They'd probably sell 50,000 tickets too. Last year, Tennessee was slotted to go to Liberty Bowl and then didn't make it. Yeah, because they, they said it was COVID-related, but I think we all probably believe that this is because of the Jeremy Pruitt and the NCAA scandal, which has remained really, really quiet. Nobody's really talked about that this football season, and I'm sure that's what the folks in Knoxville would prefer, is not to even talk about that stuff. But that is something that is going to happen sooner rather than later. But uh, Josh Heupel has done a really good job there this year in year one. Uh, they're going to be okay. Yeah, Tennessee will. And their, their fans are very excited about their future. They just want to get to this probation thing. But uh, so, you know, I think Tennessee is kind of similarly situated with Mississippi State. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how this thing plays out. Missouri at 6-6. Six and six, They're behind state. South Carolina 6-6 six and six behind state. Florida 6-6 six and six behind state. Then you get over to the West, and you know what Alabama is. Alabama is either a playoff team or New Year's Six. Ole Miss in a New Year's Six. You might as well get used to saying it. That's just how it is this year. And then Arkansas, Mississippi State, A&M, all right there together with a 4-4 four and four conference record. The tiebreaker, of course, has Arkansas ahead of us. So do you put Arkansas in the outback? Possibly. And we're going to project a lot of this a little bit later. But uh, Auburn – Six and six, and LSU six and six. So you've got a glut of those five, six, and six teams. That's why it was so important for us to win that game against Auburn. Really puts us in a much better situation to kind of avoid being in the, you know, kind of traveling somewhere maybe we're unfamiliar with. But somebody somewhere is going to get a non traditional SEC bowl game. You know, with 13 games, 13 teams, they got a spot somewhere. There's going to be an SEC team go somewhere that perhaps they may never have been before nor will ever be again like we did. You know, we went to St. Petersburg Bowl, and then next thing you know, they make that an SEC Bowl. Now it's the Gasparilla Bowl. Um, maybe do you put Florida down there? You know, do you put you know, South Carolina down there? You know, somebody's got to go to the Birmingham Bowl. Is that Auburn? You know, I, think, I think you could probably kind of shake all this thing out in a bag and just roll it out there and probably be happy with the matchups. But 
you know, Mississippi State will be in that group of six of the SEC bowl games beneath the Citrus. And if you guys uh, had forgotten about that, let me give you that list of games. I won't try to do it from memory because I'm sure that I'll make a mistake, but I've got it right here on the phone. So the SEC affiliated bowl games, obviously, you know, Citrus Bowl. And again, I think they probably take Kentucky. I think they do. I know they've been there recently, but I think they probably take them. Um, And then there is the Music City Bowl, the Outback, the Gator Bowl, the Dukes Mayo Bowl, which is the Old Belk Bowl, Liberty, and Texas. That's the six right there, what they call the group of six SEC-affiliated bowls. We will be in one of those six. We will be in one of those six. Simple as that. And so you begin to think, okay, we got three in the New Year's six. Then you've got the Citrus. So that gives you four. Then you've got us in that six. That's ten. Well, you've still got three more teams to play. Well, two of them are going to go to the Birmingham Bowl or the Gasparilla Bowl. And so then there's going to be one team out there that just is kind of filling up. Maybe it's the Vegas Bowl. Who knows? But that's where we're going to be. So basically the way this thing is considered at this point, the group of six all right there together, we're safely in that group. So we're not going to fall down to Birmingham Bowl or to the, the Gasparilla most likely today, I would say, is Liberty. And, again, I know there are personal preferences to either side of this thing. But I may feel differently on Wednesday. I may feel differently on Friday. And we'll all know for sure on Sunday. But I think it will probably kind of start leaking out on Saturday. So they'll have meetings this week to, to kind of determine, okay, if Georgia wins, this is where you're going. If Alabama wins, this is where you're going. That will all be determined. So everybody can begin to plan – you know, the band can start like putting their stuff together. We can start asking about cowbells. So all that will take place this week. And, and I, just real briefly, I want to share with you again the process because there are so many people out there, no matter how many times that we post about it or talk about it uh, or write about it, people don't seem to understand. The SEC sets the bowl destination for the league schools. Simple as that. Once you get through the playoff – the Citrus picks their participant. And they don't have to depend on FBS rankings. They can just pick who they want. And then that group of six, the remaining eight bowl games, the SEC sends them a team. So Mississippi State, let's say, let's say State fills out their preferences. Everybody turns in three. The bowl games turn in. These are the three teams we would like to have, one of these three teams. And so Mississippi State would say, okay, we would prefer number one, Liberty, number two, Texas, number three, Music City, or maybe any order you want. And so let's say if State and Liberty both pick each other, well, that's an easy decision for a league. You just give everybody what they want. You know, we've had a situation, I guess, Texas A&M went to the Belk Bowl a few years ago. They didn't want to go. They wanted a ball game, obviously, but they didn't want to go out there. They thought they'd been shafted, you know. But sometimes that happens. You don't always get what you want. But as Mick Jagger taught us, sometimes you get what you need. But that's how that works. And so, basically, the league will take feedback from both sides, the teams and the bowls, and then kind of pair up based on that. And sometimes the league just has to make a decision and says, okay, when you sign this contract, you wanted an SEC team, here's your team. Now, South Carolina fans would probably love to go to Charlotte. Tennessee fans would probably love to go to Charlotte. But I think deep down, Tennessee wants to go to Florida, and somebody's got to be in those three Florida bowl games. Somebody. Somebody's got to be in the Citrus and the Outback and 
and uh, and the Gator. Then, of course, there's the Gasparilla Bowl down there, and so we don't want to go there. We've been there. And that's the bottom rung bowl. But the reality of it is is that there's going to be, when you begin to kind of break this thing down, let's just go ahead and remove Georgia and Alabama and Ole Miss from the discussion here and look at what's available. Well, there, you, know, you got Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi State, Arkansas kind of right there together, A&M right there together. And so let's say you get Kentucky and the Citrus, and then you've got Arkansas and A&M. Let's say Arkansas goes to Outback and A&M to the Gator. Well, now you've got your Florida Bowls filled up, so now you're thinking, okay, what's going to happen in the Music City and Liberty and Texas Bowl and all that stuff? And so that's where we fall. That's where we are. Beneath the New Year's Six, beneath the Florida Bowls. And if you remember the beginning of the season, before you started getting all down in the mouth, we talked about this. That we were gonna the over and under was seven and five, and we'd probably end up in a Tennessee bowl game. And we were all happy with that. Remember that? At the beginning of the year, you and I talked about it, and I said, This is what we're looking at. And we all agreed, you know what, that'd be a nice step in the right direction. I'd like to see some progress on offense. We've gotten that. We we'd love to have the egg. That was one of our boxes we didn't get to check. But if we we're seven and five in a Tennessee bowl game, then we're on track. We have met expectations. Now, you look at each individual game, and you can say, hey, we should have won this, should have won that. And, you know, yeah, it's true. But when you look at the totality of the schedule and what our expectations were at the beginning of the year, this is, this is about what we expected. And, and people would say that I'm a little more optimistic than most. Well, we're going to be 6-6 six and six at best. You know, okay, well, cool. Well, you know, some of the same people were telling you Leach is probably going to get fired this year. Remember that? People forget that. Early in the year, Leach is not going to make it. We're going to have to make a change this year. Well, then we go out and win some ball games, and everybody's like, well, hey, maybe this will work out. And that's really what we want everybody to be. We really want everybody to believe, you know what, you're getting some enjoyment out of Mississippi State football, and we have taken a step. We have taken a positive step forward. And so we're on schedule. And, again, I think next year we're in contention for a Florida bowl game, if not, if not more. I mean, how many of us expected us to beat A&M and Auburn this year at their places? You know what, they're coming to us next year. And so we're going to begin to kind of preview that stuff a little bit later. We've got plenty of time to talk about this before we start playing bowl games again. But, uh, again, that's where we stand today. Let's thank our good friends at Portico. You know, Brooks Bryan's a friend of mine. He's a friend of yours. I bring my friends together. That's what I do. I'm the conduit for friendship with the Boneyard. Brooks, part of a great group of folks that have brought a wonderful residential development to Sargville, Portico. Very easy to get to, very easy to find. You turn off 82 on a 12. The very first right is Pat Station Road, and that'll take you to Portico. It's 1.1 miles from campus. It's on the quiet side of campus. It's where you'd want to live as an adult, where you'd want to live to raise a family. You know, maybe if you're in college, maybe you want to be on the other side of campus where it's a little more activity, a few more parties, that sort of stuff. You're on the best side of campus here, right there by that neighborhood market. It's so great. It's a wonderful time. You've got a lot going on there. And, um, you know, you can get a two-bedroom, two-bath house, or you can go up to a four-bedroom, four-bath house. So, you know, they've got pretty much any size home for your family, whether it be a weekend retreat, whether it be your primary residence, or maybe an investment property. They've got a lot for you. It's an exciting, exciting development. And I'll be honest with you, if I was moving to Starkville now, it's where I'd live. I live out in the sticks. I'd like to be a little bit closer. I really would. And I think you guys would too. You're going to have friends that are going to want to come stay with you too because it's just so much, so convenient. So give our friend Brooks a call. You'll be glad you did. He can give you all the information. You can find him on social media if you need to. But let me just give you his direct line. 
601-416-8075. Again, that's 601-416-8075. And again, you can't move to Portico now because everything in phase one has already been purchased. Phase two, construction is getting underway there, but you can have some say picking out your lot, picking out your house plans, and know exactly what you're going to get. And so rather than having to kind of settle for, you don't have to do that. I mean, how many times have you bought a house and said, well, I like everything but this? Well, you won't have that this time. You have some say in the construction of your new home. Make Portico your next move. All right, before we get out of here, let's talk a little recruiting. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the crazy time, right? So in-home visits or in-person visits began on Sunday. And you're, again, I, I warned you guys, you're going to be seeing these pictures on social media. And there'll be coaches going by visiting with your favorite player, and you think, I don't even realize they were even involved with them. This is part of the deal. There are a lot of people out there jockeying for position late because maybe, maybe they dropped a kid or a kid dropped them, and they've got to go out and find other options. Uh, Cam East, obviously we had an in-home visit with Lane Kiffin and the staff yesterday. And so that is really about trying to get in the game. Cam East, even though he took an official visit there, has not really been really warm and fuzzy about Ole Miss. He continues to say he plans to sign with Mississippi State. He has been planning to sign in February since the beginning of this process. And so there are some people that are reporting this and people think it's a new development. Oh, my gosh, he's going to wait. You know, we would love to get him signed in December. We would love to. And State's going to continue to push for that. But if that doesn't happen, it doesn't mean it's a change in the weather. But Mississippi State will be in there once a week for the next three weeks until the dead period begins. In the dead period, this is what I don't think people fully appreciate. This is why I think this December signing period is a little bit silly. Um, the only good thing about it is, is if you if somebody pulls a signing, they flip on it, you have a chance to recover and get another player uh, in February. So in that respect, I'm kind of in favor of that. So coaches are going to be on the road for a little while. And then you know, we're basically in what's called a contact period. So you get six in-person, off-campus contacts per prospect during that time. And the head coach only gets one. Well, December 12th is a quiet period. Now, what the quiet period means is you can't have off-campus recruiting activity. You finish up having your, your, your visitors, like your, your official visitors can stay, of course, through that day. And then it's a dead period from December 13th through January 13th, 30 days. So what's important about that is there is no in-face recruiting of any kind, unless it's on FaceTime. We can't visit them. They can't visit us. And as you guys know, there's some people in this state that thrive doing their best recruiting during the dead period. But, uh, but the reality of it is so we're going to be on the road and then we're going to be off the road through the, the initial signing period in December, and then we'll get back on the road uh, January 14th and then be able to, uh, to finish up and host some visitors those final couple weekends when we have the traditional uh, signing day in February. So Cam East is a guy, obviously, that uh, we want to keep. It was us in Arkansas for a long time, and then they had the offensive line coach in Arkansas went to LSU. And so we'll watch, too, what happens with LSU when they hire somebody new. Do they come in? Do they get interested in him? Is that one of the reasons that he's waited to sign in February? Maybe is he waiting at LSU? You know, we'll see. There's always some drama this time of year. But at this point, I don't, ex- I don't think you're going to lose him to Ole Miss. I think Ole Miss, the fact that they brought Lane Kiffin down there is to try to jumpstart things a little bit. They really have, they've been in contact with him, but they really haven't been able to make a lot of headway. Uh, so we'll see how things progress there. Now, Jaheim Otis talked to multiple people over the weekend about him. Uh, so we're, he's scheduled to visit us this weekend. 
after the state championship game. Play Saturday morning, 11 a.m. in Hattiesburg, Columbia High School against Centertopia for the 4A state championship. And then after that, he's expected to uh, come to Starkville and then stay through Monday morning. Ole Miss trying to get him in for a midweek visit. They're trying to get him to visit them this weekend instead of us. Now, that would be a major development. You know, a lot of people said, Steve, are you worried about Ole Miss's positioning with Jahi Motis? I have not been. And every time I talk to somebody back home that knows the kid well, I get kind of re-encouraged. Not that we're going to get him, but not that we're going to lose him to Ole Miss. If we lose him, I believe it's going to be to Alabama. Of course, he's been committed to Alabama for months. So that's not a big shock in that respect. Now, if he visits Ole Miss this weekend instead of us, that would be something to get really worried about. I don't foresee that happening. And I've been told that Ole Miss is trying to get him in for a midweek visit either this week. Yeah, this with this after us. So he's supposed to visit us this weekend. Ole Miss trying to get him in next week before he goes to Tuscaloosa. Because after Tuscaloosa, it's time to sign. Because Yahim Otis is a mid-year enrollee guy. So he's going to make his decision in December and then enroll at his new school in January. Now, one day I'll talk to a friend down there, and I say, yeah, yeah, he really likes Alabama. Not to get lost in all this Egg Bowl banner. He committed to Alabama for a reason in the first place. And that's because of Nick Saban and the fact, you know, those guys have done a great job. I mean, they're, they're a national power. And then there's the talk, too, as you know, he, he understands if he goes there, he's going to have to sit for at least a year, maybe two. If he goes to Mississippi State or Ole Miss, he has a chance to play early. And so between the two, I've been told throughout the process, is that he likes the fact that Mississippi State has put so many defensive linemen in the NFL. Now, Ole Miss folks would argue, yeah, but those coaches aren't there anymore. But it's the culture here. The better defensive line prospects in the state of Mississippi traditionally go to Mississippi State. And if you want a cautionary tale, look at Benito Jones. Benito Jones, four-star guy, all-American high school guy to Wayne County, goes to Ole Miss. What's he doing now? And really, that's the biggest defensive line recruit that uh, Ole Miss has had in recent years and didn't do anything with him. And then you look at the fact that we got a guy like Cameron Young who's already on some draft boards for next year. Jaden Crumberty is another guy that will probably be in the league. Montez Sweat, of course, is a first-rounder. Jeffrey Simmons was a first-rounder. You know, and so you can run through all this stuff and you can feel pretty good about, you know, our heritage in that respect, our legacy. So we'll see what happens. You know, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I expect to get him. I will just tell you State is firmly in the mix. That's not a new development. He likes it here. Uh, He does have some friends here, and he knows that he'll play here. So we'll just continue to keep working and see what happens. But the reality of it is we're chasing Alabama. Ole Miss is chasing us. We're chasing Alabama. So they're going to have to go from third to first. We'll see how things go. Trevion Williams, people have almost forgotten about him. People have almost taken that for granted. Do expect to get him. I think that's simply a matter of time. He and his family very close with Trent Singleton, of course. It's a solid commitment to Mississippi State. That helps. But nobody makes a decision solely based on that. It just kind of helps the fact that, number one, again, Mississippi State has produced a lot of quality defensive linemen. He has a chance to come in here and play early. And I think be a real difference maker for us. I think he is one of the better players in the class. And it's almost like our fans, ever since we felt like he was leaning to us, have just kind of forgotten about him. He's not even committed to us yet. I expect that to happen. Could happen as early as this weekend. We'll see how things go. Could be a national signing day decision. But let me prepare you for this too. And I'll write about this later in the week over on jeanspage.com. 
We're not going to get everybody we want. We're not. I do expect to get him. But let's say we get in a situation where we get Trevion. Let's say we get Kamari Rogers. We don't get Otis. He sticks at Alabama and say Stone Blanton goes to, to Ole Miss. And that's a possibility too. You know, that's a lot closer, I think, than, um, than it was. And now he's going to make a signing day decision. So we'll see how things go. But, you know, we're not going to sweep. No matter what you want, no matter what you think, we're not going to sweep. But we are going to put together our top 25 class. We're top 25 now, I guess number 23. Got a chance to move into the top 20, which is rarefied air for Mississippi State. But we're not going to get everybody. And we got everybody, it probably would be as good as that 15 class. The 15 class had a really good run here at Mississippi State. So we'll see how things progress. <clears throat> we're going to update recruiting a lot more here in the next couple of weeks, be a big part of the show uh, as we move forward because there's not games to talk about. We'll get back on Wednesday. We'll talk more about some uh, men's and women's basketball. And again, really, really proud of the volleyball dogs, as we all should be, as we're seeing something we've never seen before in Mississippi State history. And again, I go back to the, the hiring of, of Julie Darty Dennis. And you know, there were a lot of people that were like, you know, okay, it's volleyball. We don't really care. And now all of a sudden, we get excited. We get excited thinking about, you know what, this is something else we can root for. So excited to see what is to come for them. Best of luck to them on Friday. I am not a volleyball person. I'm a pretty decent volleyball player back in the day, but I can't sit here and tell you about matchups and things like that because I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know. I'm not going to be that guy that sits here and says, oh, yeah, they're, they're great, and this, Hawaii's this, and Hawaii's that. I don't know. I don't know. I just know that our ladies have played outstanding volleyball this year, and, and um, I think they got a chance to compete with anybody. Belief is a powerful thing. And when you expect to win, we go back to the whole Alabama thing. When you expect to win, you generally do. When you have doubts, you generally don't. And I think this is a team playing with a lot of confidence, so we wish them the best. And uh, excited, again, to have something else to cheer for. And uh, looking forward, obviously, to the uh, men's and women's basketball teams uh, getting through non-conference play. You know, of course, they both uh, suffered their first losses over the weekend. But we will uh, look ahead at the week there is to come on the basketball side of things on Wednesday. That's going to do it for today. If you hadn't done so, go to Dogpile the Book, and you can pre-order Dogpile. It will be here at some point. It's done. I know it's officially written, been written now for three months. Uh, it's very frustrating for me, but you can get copies of uh, Alpha Dogs, Dogpile, Alpha Dogs, Stark Villains, and Flim Flam right now, and Blooms of Oleander. You can get those, but go to Stark, Stark Villains, the book, or Dogpile, the book. It all goes to the same place, and you can get signed copies. Sold a bunch of Stark Villains and Alpha Dogs over the weekend. I want to thank you guys for coming out and supporting me at those book signings. I'll keep you apprised of the latest developments if you're looking for Stark Villains gear. And I had a lot of people that came in about Stark Villains who were unaware that you could get a Stark Villains t-shirt or hoodie. You can go to StarkVillains.com and you can order those and uh, they'll get those out to you in plenty of time for Christmas. Well, that's going to do it for today. Until next time, let's all live our lives in a way we make more friends than enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.